Welcome to Road to Consensus, the podcast designed to help you get smart before Consensus 2019. Here we'll feature speakers past and present who are behind the stories and trends moving this industry forward. I'm your host, Nolan Bowerly, and today we're joined by Amber Balday, a co-founder and CEO of Clover. So, Amber, welcome again uh, to our podcast and the Road to Consensus, uh, a Consensus alumni. You've been at a few of our events over the years, so we're happy to have you on the podcast in order to get people acquainted with what's going to be going on in just a few weeks' time. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you. You really launched into the public consciousness as, let's call her, the cypherpunk banker. Okay. Uh, well, it was a neat thing. Here was someone who certainly uh, didn't have the same, let's say, motivations as uh, your stereotypical banker, but you nevertheless were a banker and you definitely did not hide from that. Um, I worked at a bank. I would not say I was ever a banker. I mean, I, I did work on a trading desk for a period of time. I was Series 7 registered. I did uh, do development work and then move into product development um, and have worked in a number of different uh, areas of banking, from hedge funds to new product development there at the end, machine learning things and other stuff. So I was kind of all over the financial industry, um, but I never ran a portfolio where you would say you're a banker. I think the same way that hackers are very uh, protective of the term hacker and who gets to wear that label, bankers uh, actually have the same kind of uh, neuroses about it. <laughs> I can live with that. I can live that. But nevertheless, you had, let's say, contact with senior management at a major, major bank. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You, I was working with the operating committee up and down the various kind of managerial hierarchical trees. Sure. <laughs> and and you, you even would have external uh, associations with central bankers, uh, I guess, internally asset managers as well. But you also straddled the separate side of a normal corporate culture where you definitely had contact with the privacy focused and security focused units of the team. Um, what was that like being in the middle of those two relationships? That, that's interesting. I mean, there's 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 the information security department, uh, otherwise known as the cybers, you know, um, often kept down in the basement of these financial institutions and asked to review code a couple weeks before it goes out, put it through some scanner and tell if it's, if it's okay or not. There are a lot of other roles uh, in a financial institution that make the overall system work. Uh, some of that might be something like a cryptography review board. A lot of people might not be aware that the types of cipher suites that you're allowed to use in banking are somewhat limited. Um, yeah, uh, it's not, they're not necessarily limited by law, but they're limited by what will work with other systems mm -hmm. and what the general consensus of recommendations should be. We all kind of want to be using the same things. And that generally limits you down to kind of NIST-related suites or RSA suites, things that have large histories behind them. So when we were looking at doing something that treads off into new territory, like using ZK SNARKs, mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. um, these rely on different suites. Or even if you want to use something like Dan Bernstein, crypto. The people on the cryptography review board might be aware of it, but it's not deployed in production anywhere else in the bank. And it can cause a lot of headwinds to your innovation projects. And that, that's just generally because of, of cryptography itself. You have to have a certain track record before it reaches the type of maturity that we know that, that attacks have failed and it's developed a certain immunity to known attack vectors. Partially, yes. When you're, when you're talking about things that are just bleeding edge new, that's the truth. When we're talking about things that have a longer history but simply haven't been used in the commercial context in the same way, then it's it's less about the track record and more just about, like, I trust it because you use it and you use it because I trust it. It's more of a philosophy thing. 
In other countries, it is more mandated, literally from the top down, which specific protocols you use, some of those might be required to be uh, intentionally weakened so that you can give a golden key to a government. We don't exactly have that in the U.S., but there are a lot of ways that you need to be prepared to comply with uh, legal enforcement requests. And so um, that really impacts the sort of design decisions you can make. But would, would ZK Snarks, for example, have to go through that kind of review where it would have to build up that track record of security before anyone at a, at a major bank trying to make sure that every transaction is bulletproof adopt that kind of technology? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, that's totally normal and it's okay. We shouldn't necessarily be moving uh, multi-billion dollar systems onto something that doesn't have much of a track record. And the creators of those suites uh, would say the exact same thing. But that said, there are other things like the DJP crypto that are very well uh, understood and, and trusted in the larger community, but are just less applied in commercial contexts because it's easier to go with someone that has a, a, either a vendor behind it or the U.S. government uh, NIST suites. And so it's, 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 a, it's a back and forth in, in choosing what you use. And you do sit on the board for the Zcash Foundation, mm-hmm. as I understand, and definitely do uh, deal with a lot of these cutting edge protocols in a, in a pretty direct way. I wonder if it ever comes up when you do work with external enterprises that are maybe asking the question, why is this technology taking so long to develop? Why isn't it developing at the same pace as video games and the internet? Do you fall back on that answer? Because that's something that I definitely use. Do you often have to say, well, look, this is cryptography. We need to build a track record before we can deploy commercially. Is that something that comes up? I, I think it's it's a combination of a hurry up and wait and fast and slow. If you look at the longer time horizon of cryptographic innovation, some of the things that we're applying now, like there was a lot of news around Shamir secret sharing, for example, recently um, with Bitcoin. This has been around since, you know, like the 70s or 80s when people were first uh, playing with this stuff. But it wasn't packaged in a way where it was um, widely known about and reusable and implementable um, without having a very deep expertise and without an initial intent that this is what we're going to do. So one of the best things that has come out of all of this blockchain hype is this huge influx of uh, research money and attention and time of very awesome people to to work on some of these projects and not only just making brand new advances, but making things that we've had around for some time understood within the C-suite, able to say we need to use this because it's going to be a better uh, security proposition than what we had before. It solves a business problem we have, like key recovery. Um, It solves a size or scaling problem that we have. And therefore, we need to focus on making it usable and we need to jump through whatever exception handling it is that we currently have to get this into our day-to-day workflow. And have you seen that transition and that awareness at the C-suite of uh, cryptography, security, privacy really mature in a short period of time because of the crypto, let's say, boom? Or was this a natural progression that they would have come to because that's where thieves go now, they go online? It's been really fun, actually. I think a lot of um, managing directors and senior management at financial institutions are actually really big nerds. And like maybe they don't want people to know that they're nerds. But especially once you get into things like quant trading and basically trading systems today are math all the way down, right? And so uh, it is really cool to get uh, get emails from people that say, like, I haven't been this excited about something since I was doing my Ph.D. research. Can you forward me the white paper? And they will. They'll spend all night, like, pouring over understanding ZK circuits or bulletproofs or whatever is, is going, BLS curves, et cetera. And uh, then they come back and they have questions. 
And so the opportunity to kind of get into these very senior environments and have people be as excited as kids again about financial engineering from literally the engineering um, mathematical side of it is is a really cool time. Yeah, I guess they do. Uh, they are familiar with numbers to begin with. So this is just a few more numbers, right? Yeah. yeah. It's just very large, difficult to factor numbers. <laughs> Um, and I'm glad you just brought up Shamir because it actually – an anecdote uh, involving Shamir reminds me a bit of your own career trajectory. And I want to test my oh, theory. I want to test my theory. I want to test my theory. So I was watching the uh, final panel at the RSA conference last year. For listeners who don't know what the RSA conference is, it's the largest cryptographer and security – internet security uh, conference in the world in Las Vegas every year. I think they have about 50,000 people. And every year, the final panel is the cryptographers, so the people who built this stuff. So we have uh, Shamir, Revest, usually Whitfield Diffie, uh, Marley Moxenspike last year. You have a pretty good list of, of the who's who in, in the world of crypto, as they call it, not necessarily as uh, this cryptocurrency industry calls it. And at last year's final panel, they had uh, obviously a huge session on the rise of cryptocurrency um, jockeying a bit over the name, and they didn't really have much to say about it that was great. Let's say they were they were pretty down on the whole field, especially the speculation. Uh, for some reason, the hash rate of Bitcoin insulted them. Uh, not, not quite sure <laughs> okay. why. Uh, yeah. But what struck me is the second conversation they had immediately after the conversation they had about crypto was on Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. And they went on and on and on and cried their little hearts out about how no one took their work seriously. No one prioritized the cryptographer. No one prioritized privacy and security. And they said, this is just going to become a problem forever. And I was sitting there watching and I said, well, you just spent an entire, you know, 10 minutes of your 40-minute conference time uh, poo-pooing on an industry that puts people like that first. And I wonder uh, if that was one of the motivations behind your career change last year, if that was really it, to have your vision and your ideas, maybe not so much, um, you know, I don't think anyone at JPM or other companies that would be organized the same way would say, okay, you know, we don't like your ideas and, and just go sit in a corner. They just weren't at the godhead. They were not at the mo motivating factor of that industry. Would that be a correct assessment? That is a lot to unpack. Um <laughs> I mean, I think it's really cool that these people are getting together and talking about cryptocurrency. Um, I, I think Zuko and Whitfield Diffie were on a panel, right, I think before mine last year at Consensus, and it was really cool to get to meet him, actually. I've known Moxie for a long time, um, but uh, looking at the, the way that he was able to work with the leadership at Facebook and WhatsApp to get the same encryption that uh, makes the Signal app work deployed at a much wider scale is a huge feat of engineering and really, really important to a lot of people. It's it's implemented a little bit differently. So it's maybe there, there are certain people that say, oh, it's undermined in some way. But simply the fact that Signal might be the best in class application if you want to do uh, private ephemeral messaging, but it's probably not going to have a billion users at some point. And simply by getting the same underlying primitives deployed across Facebook messaging, where you have to turn it on and opt in and all this crap, so fine. But across WhatsApp, uh, as the default, was a huge background win for privacy. And out of that, you see the Signal Foundation, uh, where Brad Acton gave like $50 million to continue that work of delivering privacy at scale. You can see that there's there really is this kind of momentum behind that movement. 
but that said, I do think that a lot of you know cryptographers are kind of like hipsters, and they're like they're they're like, why doesn't anyone care what we think? And then when people kind of care what they think, they're like, but we were here first, and you're you know you're not really here. Uh, so <laughs> it's a difficult tension. But my my co-founder Patrick Nielsen, uh, an applied cryptographer himself, um, but uh, he has this fantastic rant that we gave at the Empire Hacking Meetup. Uh, I guess in December. There's a video on YouTube if you want to look it up. But we were talking about making your awesome security thing usable. And exactly the problem that, that you're saying, like, you made this really cool thing, but nobody's using it. A good example of that is uh, Argon2 uh, cryptography versus using something like Bcrypt. And if you ask people, I mean, Argon2 was created by getting some of the leading minds in the space. There was a competition. There was a selection process. It was, you know, run by governmental agencies. By all accounts, this is the best-in-class solution. But you'll ask, even amongst rooms where, you know, it has the people like whom you're speaking about on this panel, who's actually implemented this and use it, and you'll get, like, two people that maybe raise a hand, and it's in something that was a prototype. If you ask about Bcrypt... Every, half the hands, more than half the hands will go up in the room. And it's because the implementation is simplified. It doesn't require you to make guesses about some things. It doesn't make other people that extend your work have to make assumption, assumptions about it. And so the kind of worse is better mantra that you hear in like, you know, let's just hack this together. Worse is better. Uh, sometimes is true. Now, when that comes at the trade-off of the integrity of the underlying thing, it's bad. Looking at what we can do, like getting things like the noise protocol or the end-to-end stuff that Moxie was doing deployed in WhatsApp or what Let's Encrypt has been able to do for SSL across the web by not making you go through an onerous process of, of contacting a certificate authority and like setting up your own certs all the time. These are huge advances for the Internet at large that do not require you know, anybody's mom and dad to understand or care about privacy. Mm-hmm. And, and would that be the way to get these products shipped and delivered and not just some niche thing that, that only crypto people like? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess to your point about why I'm doing this kind of stuff now, but uh, yeah, it's we need to be able to, we're working on developer tooling because we need to be able to get people who want to build applications to focus on the part of the application it is that they want to build. And what they're trying to do is to solve their user's problem, right? So if someone has a problem with Patreon as a platform because it costs too much for them to accept sub $1 donations or because the art that they are creating is somehow too controversial or any number of other reasons that they want to move off of that kind of centralized platform, what that user or that artist, the problem that they have is reaching their audience at at scale and being able to process said payments and being able to create their art. They're not like, let me take back my data. Like, they don't care. If they get their data, God forbid they even figure out what to do with it and how to protect it. Like, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But, you know, it's my job to be able to facilitate the people that want to solve that problem for those users to be able to get there and do that without having to create the universe first. But your, your job, I would say, adds one more bit of complexity in that you are definitely trying to deliver these powerful, powerful tools to individual users. But you've got to do so in a way that definitely doesn't perpetuate any kind of surveillance capitalism or anyone basically making money off the backs of other people's info without them knowing or having any skin in the game themselves. 
listen, I create developer tooling. I don't vet people's business models. <laughs> so I think that people that want to create applications that just slurp data and then do this kind of stuff will just use the existing suites that are out there, left pad, whatever, and pump it out and it'll be fine. Um, the people that, that seek out or that start using this kind of alternative tooling um, that allows you to also decentralize interesting parts of your stack in kind of new ways are interested in some of the power imbalances in today's current application stacks, business models, usage patterns, et cetera, and they're going to do something interesting. But they, they all see it differently. And I, I do take umbrage with the current idea that somebody's inventing this tightly, vertically integrated stack of tech that in the future, this is what is going to define Web3 or DWeb or whatever heck it is you want to call it this week. I think there are a lot of ways to kind of skin that cat. And being able to um, help developers solve independent problems within the type of ecosystem they're trying to build is much more powerful than saying, hey, we solved this all for you. Use this box. So, so tell me a little bit more about Clover. Th- that would mean to me anyway from hearing this that your developer base that you're helping to deliver these t- tools to and help, let's say, create new tools for, uh, these people are already on that road. They're already saying, uh, we have a vested interest in changing the way information is being bought and sold, and so we're going to go and, and look at a shop like Clover to help us get over that hump. Right now, yes. I mean, it's it's very early days for all of this uh, stuff. Ideally, you don't want that to have to be the motivation, but for early traction, that's the people that are out there hunting for stuff. That's the people that are on Hacker News looking for what is this tool that does this better than this other thing. I mean, the phrase I didn't say so far is enterprise blockchain. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, people may or may not be surprised by that. I think it's maybe one of the, the biggest kind of misnomers about what we are or are not working on uh, is that we, we are solving these challenges in a way that you should be able to take something like this and make it applicable within a business environment. And that businesses are not making take back your data decisions in an altruistic mm-hmm. uh, sense. Like they, they're, especially a publicly traded company, they have a mandate to deliver value to their shareholders, mm-hmm. not to randomly give people back their data. But, but if GDPR <laughs> starts finding them so much, then they're not giving much to the shareholders. Correct. And, you know, you kind of nailed it in the sense that the, there is a changing profile to uh, data risk globally, especially among a multinational corporate that crosses jurisdictions, Mm -hmm. Uh, even within a single organization where you have multiple departments that will argue over who gets to own the canonical database. Mm -hmm. Like anybody who thinks like, oh, it's just one enterprise, why don't you just put it in a central database, has not seen that you have 15 central databases. (laughs) From an economist's point of view, I think that's been a lot of the problem with some of the private blockchains is how do you get out of the system? I mean, Mm -hmm. forks technically will be the way that it could be deployed in, in the blockchain world, but that's just it. I mean... Hospitals have been wanting to share data for a very long time now. But the question is, which place owns all that data? Where does it reside in the end? And that's why we haven't seen that go to scale. And that's minus blockchain. So right now, we're already at a, at a place where we haven't been able to deploy that stuff for very valid reasons. Yeah. I mean, we are definitely, within Clover, we're also helping uh, some of the, the corporates who have some of these earlier pilots be able to productionize them and move them into a a wider scale environment, which isn't just about selection of an underlying ledger, but is about integration with your CI/CD pipeline um, and with your cloud or on-premises environment of choice and understanding change management and hooking into your legacy systems, all this kind of stuff that is probably super boring if what you like to do is like, quote unquote, trade crypto. But they're real problems. 
And, uh, you know, if we can solve this in a way that it, it scales to that level, but it can also be used by a startup um, that is trying to solve a specific user problem in B2C land, we're starting to, to create an underlying understanding of what this, this future state architecture can look like that can speak to each other. And that doesn't mean it needs to be a single protocol, but I, I just actually gave a, a talk at the MIT Bitcoin Expo uh, over the last weekend on Saturday about, you know, their, their theme of the event was the next 10 years. You know, I, I gave kind of a funny summation of my 10-year uh, Bitcoin predictions that you can look up in the video. But more importantly, I was saying, you know, we don't really know where this is going to go. But if you go back to something like the uh, the International Network Working Group, uh, which Vint Cerf chaired in the 70s, where they were trying to figure out what the internet protocols should look like. It's very easy to draw the straight line of causality of like what we have now is just simply the way that it was going to be. But it really was undecided at that time. Mm -hmm. And there were many different protocols that were competing against each other especially IBM was driving one, uh, which is, it's kind of funny, the analogs to what we have today. But many different corporate consortia and telco consortia and things all around the world had these small business networks where they were sending information between their own machines and they were trying to figure out how to standardize this in a way where they could speak amongst each other interorganizationally. And so a lot of what we're working on now mirrors that. I think the, the irony there being that the, um, the working groups they had at the same time, besides I think the, the straight line of truth here is that we are still just as terrible at naming our working groups today <laughs> as we were in the 70s, international networking working group. But uh, it was actually a very open, decentralized process. Anyone in the world at that time could contribute. You had to pay to get access to the standards, and that was, that was a problem. But it was, it was going to be perfect from the get-go. We were going to tie it up with a bow. It was like shoved full of features, and we had sorted out every problem from the beginning. Uh, and in, in the end, what ended up working uh, was what developers wanted to use that was lightweight, kind of weird, connectionless, uh, did not really mirror the, uh, the circuit switching of the existing telephone system and therefore was kind of anathema to the existing telcos. But it was lightweight and it was implementable, much like Bcrypt. <laughs> it, it had that social scalability that we hear in Nixabo. It had the, yeah, it had the, um, you know, play with it and it will actually work for you mm -hmm. and you can mm -hmm. extend it thing. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I, I don't think it's about permission versus permissionless as much as about this kind of connectivity of, of thinking a little bit more granularly about, well, two, two layers. You need to think a little bit more granularly about what we can make work across these boundaries that are existing and what you can get to work even within your own in organization in single-player mode that can then extend out what, to be multiplayer. Ba basically, what are users, developers, are they willing to invest their time into this? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And if you just hand them a top-down package and you're like, here's the blockchain now, like, add this into your existing workflow... It's probably not going to work out so well. Now, uh, I want to go back to the GDPR for a moment because I think that you're pretty much the only outfit, Clover, is that I've seen pick up on this, that the exclusion to the GDPR is privacy by design, which means keeping keys with uh, users and customers means you are not subject to the law itself. Is that something that people are surprised by when you actually give them that advice? Is that something that uh, you found a lot of traction with? Um, and, and basically, to come back to that, do you foresee a time when regulators, uh, the people who are handing out fines to these companies, can actually cripple these industries to the point that, that it's a better choice to go for a blockchain-type solution with privacy by design baked in? Yeah. When it comes to um, regulation, I mean, 
when, when you're designing these kind of data models, you have like the carrot and the stick. And the regulation is definitely the stick of like, this is coming for you, so you better comply. On the other side, you have the carrot of if you are able to manage your data appropriately, you can de-risk your organization and at the same time even get access to data that right now you cannot necessarily because the, the legal, uh, regulatory, and even technical hurdles can be too high. Uh, so being able to kind of thread that needle and deliver new business value is a fantastic conversation to have with people. I can't get into it like too much yet because we're still kind of, you know, working on a lot of this stuff. But uh, definitely, it's, 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 um, it's an interesting conversation to have. And te- regulation will always trail the, the bleeding edge of, of technology uh, innovation. I would love to get out there in front of that altruism conversation and get a lot of these conversations driven by uh, we can get you better insights than you can get today with your current data footprint mm-hmm. while at the same time increasing your security stance. Like basically saying to some of these companies, why are you spending millions or hundreds of millions or in the case of banks, billions of dollars securing mother's maiden names and dog's names and other answers and things like that? Yeah. And this isn't um, like you don't need a coin to do this. <laughs> you don't need mm-hmm. hardware privacy implementations to necessarily do this. There are a lot of uh, there. You don't need to put data on a blockchain. You should not put mm-hmm. data on a blockchain to solve this. So I think that's the biggest misconception is that people like they see a PowerPoint somewhere and then they think, oh, we need to put our data on a blockchain to solve GDPR. And then the next person says to them, no, any data on a, a blockchain cannot be rescinded and violates GDPR. And now they're completely confused. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so kind of unwinding a lot of that is, is a challenge. <laughs> I think where a lot of people get confused is they don't understand maybe the difference in the network layer or not network. Or layer the network itself and the authentication aspect of just key ownership equals authentication and you are who your key whoever owns the key is who they are well just like people uh think of decentralization in a binary state of like you know are we decentralized yet but really decentralization is an ongoing process and you can have points of decentralization at a, amongst a system privacy is the same way it's not like an are we private are we not yet but it's, it's something that you're constantly working on, and, and uh, you can have solutions at multiple layers. So if you look at something like Zcash, that is a very protocol, low-level approach to privacy, that's different than something like using dandelion rounding, uh, uh, privacy network, or, or, or Tor, or <coughs> I2P, or, mm-hmm. um, or say, having a, a, a robust uh, authentication uh, system around user access controls. It's a different kind of privacy. So it exists all throughout your stack and is a great reason to get cybersecurity professionals that you probably already employ uh, involved in product design when you're looking at um, building these things rather than thinking privacy or security is something that we'll tack on later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, once again, the motivating factor behind a lot of businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking about a lot of businesses, tell me a bit more about what you're up to personally. You're all over the map. Let's see. I Well, I just got back from Boston at MIT, and uh, tomorrow or Wednesday, I head out to Austin for South by Southwest. I'm really excited for that talk this year. Uh, it's called Money, Apathy, Cryptography, the Fates of Internet Societies. Fun, fun. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a play on the guns, germs, steel thing. G- give us a hint. Give us just a, uh, a taste of what the South by Southwest audience is going to hear. The hint is that I'm really good at writing abstracts, and now I'm like, wow, that sounds like an amazing talk. I would love to go see that. I wonder what she's going to say. <laughs> Uh, It's really this kind of thinking at a a wider level about how we ended up here. How did we end up at a place where our social networks might be responsible for election tampering? Mm -hmm. How are our uh, cryptocurrency networks possibly playing into um, political revolutions? 
how are our businesses influencing some of the adoption of some of these cryptographic suites even, right? Like, it wasn't even until banks needed to send wire transfers in the early 80s um, or the late 70s that uh, desencryption forced um, the government of the U.S. to reclassify uh, cryptography as not necessarily purely munition, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right, that it might have commercial applications. So, like, all of this narrative is happening constantly, and it's, it's very easy to just get lost in the cloud of it. But at the same time, um, it's very easy to sit on crypto Twitter and just be completely myopic and think, like, you know, when moon. And mm-hmm. the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle of that. But thinking about what kind of system we want to create as a whole, our role in shaping that right now, it does kind of feel like we're in that those 70s working group conversations here, and that um, someday we will have that same hindsight and survivorship bias to look back at where we are today and say, this is the only way that things could have played out. But it's not. Right now, it is not really clear whether or not central bank digital currency will mean that a, a government has pure insight into every transaction amongst the population, or whether a privacy-preserving cryptocurrency is going to um, take the world or a specific subset by storm or be regulated out of existence. Mm-hmm. We, we so simply don't know. Will, will the financial sector continue to be deputized by law enforcement regulators or not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how can we uh, kind of, you know, put the camel through the eye of the, the needle mm-hmm. on making sure that privacy technology uh, includes enough selective disclosure that we can abide by the law, but not just abide by the law, but make sure that regulators and understand that we're actually doing them a favor and, mm-hmm. and that even DOD and other kind of, uh, I'm speaking in a very kind of U.S. centric, sure. but every country has these same kind of conversations, that these government entities understand that um, it's not just about weakening things to work with them, but it's about protecting things from intrusion by even foreign governments. And this leads us to this very kind of us versus them binary, we're at war feeling that can be very depressing Mm -hmm. day to day. But if you look at the data about, um, say, life expectancy and per capita GDP throughout the world, there's a really fun gif I have on this now from Hans Rosling, uh, who has a fantastic TED Talk. Okay. It's it's Uh, excellent. (laughs) But overall, the life expectancy and, and and individual wealth has increased over the last hundred years across the board. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not a zero-sum game scarcity thing, the way that we're kind of led to believe by the news headlines. That that my wealth is based on your poverty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly there are places where life is bad, children can't go to school, gender equality is not a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But overall, a lot of people today are better off than they were. Mm -hmm. And we can design um, networks in knowledge of the Mm -hmm. actual data that supports that, Mm -hmm. as well as this kind of nagging fear that we have that, Mm -hmm. uh uh-oh, things could be different and all of this might be a terrible dystopia already. (laughs) I I think Steve Jobs passing put a lot of that into the forefront because here you had a guy, you know, if you remember, he was heavily criticized for not being very philanthropic. Um, But the flip side of it was his inventions have increased literacy around the world to such an extent that it's it's going to be wiped out in a generation. So where do you draw the line there? This is, you know, his wealth certainly was a real thing, but the whole world became a little wealthier in experience and knowledge and, and everything else. So... Um, you know, he's a weird guy. He's a very weird guy. <laughs> he's a very weird guy. But I remember those arguments coming out when that happened, and uh, and that put what you just said right into context. You know, it is it is a, a world where we're seeing a lot of progress, and 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 wealth can be get wealth. You know? Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, that's about all the time we have today for Amber Ball Day. We would love to uh, direct some of our uh, great listeners to your Twitter handle or wherever else they can follow you. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind telling our great audience uh, where that is. Sure. On Twitter, I'm at Amber Balday, creatively. It is B-A-L-D-E-T. Uh, and uh, you can also find out more about Clover at uh, the Grow Clover handle. It is C-L-O-V-Y-R. And we're at uh, Clover.io as well. You'll also catch Amber at Consensus 2019, May 13th to 15th here in New York City. That's it for episode two of Road to Consensus. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the content, you can get a lot more of it if you register for Consensus at consensus2019.com. Listeners can also use the code ROAD200 to get $200 off a ticket. That's ROAD200. Join us for our next episode with guest Will Martino of Kadena, who will be speaking at Consensus May 13th to 15th in New York City.